And when from death I'm free, I'll sing on, I'll sing on. Amen? We praise the Lord this morning for the ability to sing praises to his holy name and worship him. Let's continue our worship this morning as we turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, we're going to be looking at two verses this morning, uh, verses 6 and 7. So if you'd please turn there and then stand with me for the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. This is God's word. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for fruit, for food, excuse me, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. So she took from its fruit and ate. She also gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Uh, Well, three little words. Three simple words, three simple words which communicate a simple truth, yet a truth that has had monumentally significant impact on each and every one of our lives, on each and every life of every human being who has ever or will ever exist. Three simple words. He ate it. He did eat. Our translation? And he ate. He ate, and in that moment, the whole of human existence changed forever. O soul, are you weary and troubled? It's because he ate. No light in the darkness you see? It's because he ate. Is there strife between you and your spouse, between you and your family members, between you and your friends, more importantly, between you and your creator? It's because he ate. Are you sitting there this morning with an aching body? Has your body been ravaged by some birth defect or an accident or illness or disease? It's because he ate. Are you unsettled this morning? Are you uneasy, unsure about the meaning of your existence? Do you find yourself in a constant state of anxiety and fear and worry and doubt, shame and guilt even? It's because he ate. Are you in mourning over the death of a loved one, whether in recent days or still from many, many years ago? Well, it's because he ate. Indeed, every death, every sickness, every sadness, every sorrow, every hurt, every offense, every struggle, every injury, every ailment, every ache and pain, every Bruise, every doctor visit, every trip to the pharmacy and medication taken, every fear, every doubt, every failure, every falling short, every counseling session, every case of abuse, every murder, every suicide, every addiction, every tragedy, every broken relationship, every slander, every outburst of anger, every lie, every jealous thought, every lustful thought, every prideful thought, even every blasphemous thought that you've ever had in your life, every sin, every sin that you've ever committed, whether in deed, word, or thought, regardless of who you are, where you were born, to whom you were born, or even what generation you were born into, Every generation following the man and woman we just read about has felt this same sin, anguish, and agony of soul. And it all came as a result of these three words. And he ate. And he ate. This is an extraordinarily significant section of Scripture. Indeed, uh, indeed the most significant section of scripture in terms of why things are the way they are in this life and in this world. Why is there so much suffering in this world? Genesis 3, verses 6 and 7. Why is there so much corruption in this world? Genesis 3, 6 and 7. 
Why is there so much evil in this world? Genesis 3, 6 and 7. Why, oh why, must all of us die? Answer? Because of what happened in Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 and 7. This morning we're going to look at verses 6 and 7. We're going to con- uh, consider the immediate context of Adam's sin, the immediate effects and implications of this willful transgression of the command of God as he ate. We'll then consider the impact of these three words uh, on the whole human race. Again, every man, woman, and child who has ever or will ever ever lived as through one man's sin entered into the world, death through sin, and so death spread to all men then we're going to bring it back to our individual lives, to our lives, our personal sin, our personal falling short, along with our personal position before a perfectly holy and perfectly righteous creator. Now, there's no need to rehash what happened last week with Eve and the serpent. We spent uh, considerable time with them. We'll see them again in verses 14 and 16. But to summarize... Eve was lied to by the father of lies, the adversary, the accuser, the devil himself, who first twisted and then outright contradicted the words of God, deceiving the woman into believing that a good God would never hold such a good thing as this good fruit back from such a good couple as themselves. The serpent even said, well, he knows you're going to be like him if you eat that. He doesn't want to share his glory. Well, She buys the lie, she believes the creature rather than her creator, and she bites into this fruit. And if that wasn't bad enough, uh, Moses writes, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And this is where, uh, as some have said, this is where all hell breaks loose. As this woman, Isha, gave the fruit to her husband, Ish, and he ate. Adam, who was not deceived, by the way, he was not led astray, he was not hoodwinked, but rather knowingly, voluntarily, under his own volition, according to his own free will, yes, I said it, his own free will, he took the fruit and ate it. Now, what do I mean by free will here? Well, free, but certainly still limited in this garden. They were finite creatures, right? I maintain the position that God and God alone is the only one who has true free will in the purest sense of the word. But Adam and Eve had free will here up until this third chapter in the sense that they had been given a certain integrity at this point. Uh, They had the free will to act, but only in accordance with their nature, Their nature, which up to this point in chapter 3, was sinless, right? And righteous and good. Not infinitely righteous, not infinitely good as their creator was, but as righteous and good as a finite creature can be. Adam was without sin. Uh, He had a righteous nature at creation, which means that he then had the capacity to Uh, than to choose willfully to maintain and retain that goodness. Okay, Adam had in his original nature the the ability to say, no, I'm not going to do that because God told us not to do it. In other words, he wasn't enslaved or in bondage to a sin nature. That that new enslaved nature comes in uh, in that little white space in between verses 6 and 7 there. In the first part of Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, though, Adam had the, the choice to do right. He just blew it. And he, he did so intentionally, purposefully. This was an act of pure rebellion, maybe as if to say, you know, I know what God said. I know what God said is right and pure and true because he told me so, and he's my creator. I I can look around here, and I can see that creation is very good, which reflects his very good and righteous character. But I just don't believe that he'll do what he says he's going to do to us. Look what he's given me. Look at this paradise. Look at this garden. Look at these animals. Look at the responsibility I've been given. Look at this woman. I am the 
crown of his creation. He's not going to kill us. Are you kidding me? Maybe he said that. I don't know. I wasn't there. Maybe he said, I don't really care what God says. Who does he think he is withholding this fruit from me? I can do what I want to do. I don't need him bossing me around all the time like that. My my wife and I are going for all the glory here. We're going to get what's ours. Now that blasphemous language, such blasphemous language may seem like a reach, but as we'll see next week, he'll go on to straight up blame God for his actions here in verse 6, right? When Yahweh God says to him in verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave to me from that tree I ate. The woman you gave to me, who listened to that serpent that you made, she gave it to me. So, so you see, ultimately, this is on you. This is a deflection at its finest. A deflection and blame shifting has been around since the, the very beginning here. But God says in verse 17, listen, because you listened to the voice of your woman, or excuse me, the woman, and you failed to listen to my voice, not only are you cursed, not only is she cursed, and the serpent cursed, but all of creation is cursed along with you. Even the very ground you're standing upon is now cursed. Yeah, this was a deliberate act of rebellion by a man who was created good, placed in a perfectly good environment while possessing a a good and righteous nature who, in his own free will, chose consciously, knowingly, to disobey God's clear command, right? A.W. Pink confirms this. Our first parents had that freedom of will, he says, or power to retain their integrity. This is evident from the clearly revealed fact that they were under an indispensable obligation to yield perfect obedience to God and liable to, to deserved punishment for the least deflection. That should be deserved. Therefore, they must have been given a power to stand, a liberty of will to choose that which was conductive to their happiness, conducive to their happiness. The same thing is also evident from the Uh, difference between man's primitive and present state. As fallen, man is now by a necessity of nature inclined to sin. And accordingly, he is denominated the servant of sin, uh, a slave to it entirely under its uh, dominion. He's saying now we are enslaved to sin. We're, We're under control. We don't have this free will that so many people talk about. We're We're in bondage to our own sin nature since the fall. And and that's a very important distinction distinction there. Remember, it's at this point in verse 6 that everything changes, right? Everything changes. Perfect body, gone. Perfect mind, mind, gone. Perfect nature, gone. Perfect environment, perfect fellowship between man and animals, between man and woman, between man and God. God, gone, 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 gone. It's all gone. This is that moment Solomon describes in Ecclesiastes 7 when he writes, God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. God made man upright. Good, very good. But at this moment, not only Adam, but in fact All who would come from Adam, all born of his seed, all his posterity, or the generations that proceed from him, which again is all of us in here this morning, would fall. We all fell. I've heard it likened to a tree itself. Uh, God planted a good seed in the good soil of the good garden. That good seed shot up and it grew a nice, thick, good trunk. Adam was that good trunk, uh, which branches and leaves would begin to shoot out from. All the branches and all the leaves from Adam's trunks were all of his descendants, okay? And Adam's deliberate disobedience here in verse 6 was the axe that struck that trunk, causing not only 
Adam to fall and die, but all of the branches and leaves that came out of him to fall and die as well. And that's exactly what happened. We all died when he died, right? God said, listen, from any tree of the garden, you may surely eat. But from the tree of the knowledge of of good and evil, you shall not eat from it. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. You're going to die if you eat from that tree. And that's exactly what happened immediately. Adam died spiritually right away. As did everyone who would be born of his seed, all who branched out from that trunk. Everyone is dead. Every descendant of Adam is born into this world, even conceived into this world, spiritually dead because of the single act of disobedience. Why? Well, because again, Adam was our ambassador in the garden. He was our federal head. He he was the one who represented all of his posterity. All the generations come forth from him. In other words, all of humanity. We all fell when he fell. And I know what someone's thinking. How in the world is that fair? That, that we all have to suffer because of his mistake. That's ridiculous. I got some comments last week. You know, all he had to do was not eat that fruit. So easy. I mean, I would never have eaten that fruit. Uh, Some commentators uh, believe Adam and Eve didn't even last a full 24 hours before falling. Certainly no longer than 48, but I'm not sure how they know that. But I'll I'll tell you this. We wouldn't have lasted 24 to 48 seconds in that garden. I'll just speak for myself. I wouldn't have lasted 10 seconds in that garden. Why? Because Adam was good. He, He was very good. He had an unhindered intellect. He was brilliant, he was beautiful, he was talented, he was wise, he had a pure thought life all the time, he had pure motivations, he was kind to his wife, he was generous, tender, and loving to his wife, always. He, he was an untainted image bearer of God. He was mankind's best hope in that garden. He was the best we had to offer. He just blew it. He, he made the wrong choice. And because of it, we all suffer. Because we all descended from his seed. Okay? That's what Paul means when he says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. And as a result of this original sin, we have all gone astray, each to our own way. We have been unfaithful, disobedient. We have broken the laws of God. We have violated the covenants of God on our own. We have run away from our creator. That's the direction of all mankind. That's the direction. Uh, Fallen, fleeing, and failing. Failing to live up to God's perfect expectation for our lives, because we were all born into this world having inherited the now corrupted nature which Adam and Eve for the first time possess in the last part of verse number six. That's why. From here on out, everything changes, okay? And they know it right away. Verse seven, point two. Moses writes, and the eyes of both of them were opened, They knew they were naked. You know, Satan was right. There was some truth in his deception, though, of course, it was a venomous half-truth. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. Both Adam and Eve's eyes were opened. He was correct there. But then the lie. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, they already knew good. Right? They had always known good, right? Their whole environment was good. And they already knew evil in some sense. God mentioned same-day death should the man violate the prohibition and probation by eating uh, the tree. But they didn't know evil like God knew evil, nor would they comprehend the depths and consequences of their evil until later in the chapter. But here, their eyes were opened. 
Matthew Henry has a note on this phrase, their eyes were opened. He said, now, when it was too late, they saw the folly of eating forbidden fruit. They saw the happiness they had fallen from, the misery they had fallen into. They saw a loving God provoked, his grace and favor forfeited, his likeness and image lost, dominion over the creatures gone. They saw their natures corrupted and depraved and felt a disorder in their own spirits of which they had never before been conscious. They saw a law in their members warring against the law of their minds and captivating them both to sin and wrath. In other words, they immediately sensed the effects of their own transgression. They felt the sting of sin, the weight of guilt, the fear of death, which caused them to sulk in shame. They were aware instantly of their now corrupted natures. For the first time ever, they felt that separation and alienation from God, which we've all felt as well at some point, right? Yeah, this is the first time. Well, we can see the Immediate response to this newfound knowledge in this last half of verse 7.3. Moses says, They knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. This is the bashful adaptation. As they adapted to their new environment. Where, where nakedness was no longer a good thing in their eyes. They were naked and ashamed, so they covered up. They placed leafy barriers between themselves, which speaks not only of their separation from one another, but also foreshadows their separation from their creator when they scurry off into the trees here in a moment, where Adam says, well, I heard the sound of you walking in the, or excuse me, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. To which God replies with not, why are you hiding from me? Or, why are you afraid of me? But rather, who told you that you were naked? Uh, that's an interesting question there, one we'll dive into next week. Who told you that? <laughs> How do you even know what being naked means? You, they had never worn a garment in their lives. Now they've, they've got these itchy, broad leaves covering up their private parts. And God says, what's up with that? What, who told you that you were naked? What's going on here, Adam? Now, of course, God knows exactly what's going on here. He's not caught off guard by any of this. Having said that, I can't help but think of his observing these two behind these trees. Can you imagine how pathetic they looked? I mean, they're, they're hunched over there, weaving these stems of these leaves together, fashioning little bikini bottoms, and then fixing them to their, their bodies. What a fall from grace this is. What a tragic sight this must have been. I mean, considering all they had been provided with, uh, this perfect environment, this good, delightful garden on this very good earth. It's hard to even think about this. We'll continue to do just that over the next few weeks, though. Before we go, in light of this passage here this morning, and specifically these three words, and he ate. I felt compelled to implore you to truly consider how this fall in this garden has impacted not only Adam, not only all of humanity, not just society today, not just everyone out there, not just everyone in here, not your neighbors, your friends, your family, or your spouse, or your kids, but you personally. Personally. How did the fall impact you personally? Now again, this isn't going to be easy to hear. In fact, this may be very painful to hear. It's embarrassing. It's shameful. It's offensive. It's humiliating. And believe me, I don't want to be offensive for the sake of being offensive here. Nor is it my intention to break any bruised reeds or extinguish any faintly burning wicks. I'm not on the attack here. Okay? That's what I'm saying. Please believe me. I'm talking to myself as well. You know what they say. You're not crazy if you talk to yourself or even when you answer yourself. You're crazy if you interrupt your own conversation. 
Well, I'm going to talk about sin for a moment. How we individually were impacted by the fall. I want to talk about our total depravity. Okay? Our spiritual bankruptcy. Our spiritual deadness. Our desperate need to be born again. Okay? Because I believe there's a tendency within all of us, fallen men and women, to at some point either downplay the reality of our own depravity, to distort the reality of our own depravity, or to dismiss the reality of our depravity, even sinfulness altogether. So this is far from an attack. No, it's a plea. It's a plea for us to see, to have our eyes open to the reality of our own depravity, which will ultimately lead to the recognition of our desperate need to be delivered from it. It's very tempting to downplay, distort, or dismiss the reality of our depravity. And one of the ways that we do this is by holding ourselves to the wrong standard. Okay? Case in point. Last week, I talked about the world getting worse and worse. I said it felt like these past few years and months even, the evil of this world seems to be ramping up exponentially. I talked specifically about our demonic governor signing uh, into law demonic legislation which directly attacks the most vulnerable among us, babies and children. Comments which I wholeheartedly stand by, by the way. I talked about the LGBTQ agenda and abortion. I talked about the increase of crime and domestic violence, the Barabbas-loving nation where criminals are celebrated and law-abiding citizens are punished. This is just the reality of life on a corrupted and cursed earth and environment. But if we're not careful, if I'm not careful, we could very well develop an us-and-they mentality, which could lead to the downplaying or diminishing of our own wickedness and depravity. Okay? It could be very easy for us to start using labels. Oh, the gays. Oh, the libs. Oh, the pedos, the thugs, the drunks, the liars, the fornicators, the whores, the tax collectors, those who don't fast or wash their hands before they eat. You see where I'm going with this. We know evil abounds. <laughs> we know it. I saw a story last week where a woman sold her own three-year-old daughter to her drug dealer boyfriend for $10 of crack cocaine. The guy proceeded to rape and then murder the little girl. Sold by her own mom. We hear of men killing their entire families, their teenage sons and daughters, their wives, moms killing their little babies. We hear of rapes incest, the torturing of other human beings from the youngest among us to the oldest among us, men and women and children being treated as nothing more than animals, animals who are also abused, by the way. This is nothing new. It's been happening since the fall. Uh, we'll see it in the very next chapter. Cain, you killed your brother because he made a better offering? Killed him? Yeah. Because that's what we do. That's who we are. It's who we are in our natural condition. It's our nature. But if we're not careful, we can develop a, no, that's their nature mentality. While lifting ourselves up to that place of false piety as the Pharisees and scribes did in the time of Christ. Whom he called out repeatedly, by the way. He said, don't do that. Hypocrites. We, we, we must protect ourselves from this worldly mindset of, well, I'm no Hitler, or, or I've never murdered anybody, or I've never raped anybody, as if that's the standard for morality. Oh, oh, you didn't, you're not Hitler, and you didn't rape anybody. Okay, welcome into glory. No, no. We must be honest with ourselves about the depth of our own depravity individually. I believe, this is a, I believe this is key to genuine and saving faith. I really do. 
I've heard it said, I've quoted it many times from this pulpit, I don't know who said it first, but I'm glad they did. True humility is achieved when a person recognizes who they truly are and who God truly is and who they truly are in light of who God truly is. And that's the key, my brothers and sisters. That's the key to the achievement of what Peter urged us to do last week, to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, not other fallen human beings. Hitler is not our standard. Uh, Rapists and pedophiles and wicked governors are not our standard. Nor are the best people among us our standard. The the most godly, upright, generous, benevolent, pious people on this earth are not our standard either. Why not? Well, because we're all on the same level when we're placed alongside the true and correct standard for righteousness. Okay? We're all on the same level when we're placed alongside the true and correct standard of righteousness. And it's that standard that I want to show you this morning. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 for one moment here. Matthew chapter 5, greatest sermon ever preached. I want you to see it with your own eyes and your own Bibles. Don't take my word for it. You got to look. I want you to see who the true standard of righteousness is, okay? Verse 43. Jesus Christ says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those uh, who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? In other words, even pagans love their moms. Even those whom you detest don't even want to be in the same vicinity of, say hi to their friends. But he's quick to emphasize, other people are not the standard for holiness. Rather, here's who you are to measure yourself against. Verse 48, therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 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 We are to be perfect. No defects, no faults, no shortcomings, no failures, no discrepancies, no errors or lapses in judgment, no violation of holiness, whether intentional or accidental, no mistakes, no sin ever. Whether in thought, word, or deed, we are to be perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfectly just, perfectly honest. We are to be perfect as he is perfect. And we are to live our lives perfectly without deviation from the left to the right. And we are to do so from our youth, nay, from our birth, indeed, from our conception. We are to be perfect. If not, we are justly condemned to an eternity in hell. So I'll just ask, how are you doing with the whole perfection thing? Well, let me take some pressure off you this morning. We can't do it. And we haven't done it. We can't even do it from this moment on. We could never do it because we were conceived and born in sin. We were cursed In conception, we are totally incapable of living up to the standard. In fact, hold on to your seats now. We're all on par with the worst in society when placed up against this standard. 
when, when, when put up against an infinitely, perfectly holy God. And that's where the total and total depravity comes in. When you have a right standard for righteousness, not each other. <laughs> when, when, when we set ourselves against the proper standard of holiness and righteousness, which is not one another, we, we, we may be able to impress one another here. I think we're pretty good at doing that. But that's because we don't see us as God sees us. Believe me. It's like Spurgeon said, if you knew who I really was, you wouldn't be listening to me right now. But if I knew who you really were, I wouldn't be talking to you right now. And that's right. Only God knows who we are. Only God knows. That's what Paul meant, by the way, when he said, uh, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, the glory of God, not the glory of other men. That's why he quotes in Psalm 14, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. There is none who understands. We don't understand the truths of God. We can't truly comprehend his unattainable standard for righteousness, and we can't even fathom just how short we've fallen of it. There is none who understands. Only he knows this. Only he knows. Let me ask you, have your eyes been open to this reality? Have you seen the true standard for morality and holiness, or are you guilty, along with the majority of American evangelicals, of downplaying your own depravity by comparing yourself to other finite, sinful human beings? Well, I pray that we would see our standard. Also, that we would see our sin. Okay, now that we know who the true standard of righteousness is, namely this perfectly holy, holy, holy God, now it should be much easier for us to see where we fall short of his perfect expectations or miss the mark or sin against him. Where, where, where do we sin against him? As Adam did in the garden, our, our sins should be evident to us. Okay, they should be clear just by our own conscience, but also by his revealed word of God. You know, I know there's a trend in these past few decades and this era of seeker sensitivity to say, hey, we want to attract visitors into our meetings. We want to attract uh, outsiders into our meetings. And in order to do that, we have to give up talking about some of the things that they may find offensive, you know, like sin and repentance and wrath and hell, these words. People, people just really don't like talking about that. I know that's not uncommon these days, and frankly, it's nothing new. No, folks don't want to discuss sin. They don't, they don't want to discuss death. They don't want to talk about, or, or they do want to talk about living life to the fullest and prospering and, and having peace and uh, pleasure and happiness in this life. Then on the other side, though, you, have, you do have churches who all they talk about is sin in a condemning and judgmental manner, like those Pharisees. You're a sinner. You need to repent. God is angry with the wicked every day. True statements, of course. But the tone, the delivery is harsh. It's hypocritical. Like the preacher doesn't realize he's got three fingers pointing back at himself, right? Yeah, amen. Thanks, Enos. Well, we don't want to be either of those extremes, right? We just want to be honest about our sin. Be honest about it. We, we, we don't want to downplay it by holding ourselves to false standards, and we don't want to distort it or dismiss it by pretending it's not a reality. By, by just closing our eyes and plugging our ears and hoping it all just goes away. No, no. Sin is extremely serious. Okay? That's what brought all this suffering and death onto us. That's why we live in a world like we live in. That's why everyone before 1907 has died. Yeah, the oldest living woman. She lives in Spain somewhere, born in 1907. She's going to die soon. Just like everyone in here will die soon as well. Soon, physically. Unless the Lord returns first. Why? Because of sin. Because of sin. It's been that way since Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. As in Adam, all die, Paul says. 
We all die physically because of sin. And we all died spiritually because of sin. So if sin is the ultimate cause of death, why in the world would we want to avoid talking about it? That'd be like going to the doctor and hearing them say, you know, you got cancer, buddy. Are we going to be like, oh, don't say that. Don't say that. that that's offensive to me. That, uh, I don't have time for that, doc. You seem a little judgmental when you say that. I'm going to go somewhere else. Or we're going to say, oh, my word. Okay, what's the plan? What, what can I do? How can we treat this? I mean, is there a cure? What kind of cancer do I have? Can I see the images? Can I, what can I take? You see what I'm saying here? Yeah. It seems crazy to avoid the reality of our own sin when the Bible is clear that it's not only the leading cause of death among all people, but ultimately the only cause of death among all people. And the Bible is crystal clear. It's not even that man is very sick. Actually, he is dead so far as his relationship to God is concerned. We are all spiritually dead. Not mostly well, not somewhat ill, not even really, really sick and on the verge of death, but we are dead. Sin has killed us spiritually. We are completely and totally spiritually impotent, spiritually incompetent, completely incapable of doing anything good or anything pleasing to the Father in our natural condition. That's just the way it is. Therefore, we ought to pray, Lord, let us see our standard. Let us see clearly our standard. Let us see our sin for what it truly is, and let us see our separation from you. Again, we've talked about this separation from birth. Jesus said, we are judged already. We're condemned already. We're born into this world under the righteous wrath of an infinitely holy God already. That's our default position when we arrive onto this earth. We're not born good until we sin. We sin because we're born sinners. We're we're born separated there. Therefore, we're born separated from a holy God because of our inherited nature, you see. Paul says we were alienated from our creator. We were enemies of our creator. We need to see this about ourselves, our individual selves. God doesn't grade on a curve. We need to see this about ourselves so that we can then ask the question, is there a cure? How can we be remedied of this, right? Especially when we consider the ultimate source of those who, uh, the ultimate sentence of those who remain in their sin and in this spiritually dead condition until their physical death. The, the temporal effects of sin, they're evident enough. Sin touches everything. It destroys lives. It destroys families. It destroys communities. It destroys whole societies. There are many temporal and practical reasons to avoid sin in our lives, to flee from the temptation to sin. But I want to plead with you to see the sentence of those who remain in their natural, spiritually dead condition all the way till they die. Okay, Think about this for a moment. Namely, the sentence of eternal separation from God. Eternal. This holy God will not tolerate anything other than perfect holiness and righteousness in heaven. Do you understand that? There will be no corruption. There will be no death. There will be no curse in the new heavens and the new earth. Only perfection. But there is a very real place called hell and the lake of fire. I need to tell you this. This was a place originally prepared for the devil and his angels, but now it's also the eternal destination of those whose names were not written in the book of life from before the foundation of the world. Jesus said in that same sermon that we quoted earlier, whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Jesus said that. Jesus said this is a real place. And who runs hell? Satan, like in the movies? That's right. Who does that? That's right, God himself. God himself. He said, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. God alone has that ability. Only God. Satan's going to be a mere occupant. Okay? 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? That's no hypocrisy because the one who said that was perfect, right? Perfect preacher. And he says, hell is a death sentence, an eternal spiritual death sentence. Interesting how Adam didn't die physically the moment he ate that fruit, right? He lived another 930 years on the earth. He was separated from God, spiritually speaking, but in the grace and mercy of our Lord, he was still allowed to live physically. They still lived on the earth, experiencing blessings from the Lord. They, they experienced marriage and intimate relations. They experienced the blessings of children. We just heard of that refreshing rain which brought forth crops, the sun which warmed Adam and Eve post-fall even, and the stars of the sky, the beauty of the sky. They, got to, they still got to experience all the good things of this earth, right? Well, in the same way, most everyone living today gets to experience good things in life. We get to experience the sun ourselves. We get to experience rain and laughter and love and music and art and food and family and friends and travel. These things are enjoyed by everybody, including those who absolutely hate God. He still lets them enjoy it. He still shows them a common grace. But those days are coming to an end. In fact, there's coming a day for those who remain his enemies when all the common graces of this life will be removed. It will only be the sorrow and the guilt and the shame and the suffering, the torments of life. Worst of all, the judgment for their own sin. Now, it's been said that a person's worst day on earth will be their best day in hell. I don't want that for any of you, okay? The only way I know how to effectively warn you about the wrath to come is to implore you to see the true standard for righteousness, to see your own sin and depravity, to see your own separation and alienation from your creator, and then to See the just sentencing that he has placed on our everlasting souls. And then, just when it seems like all hope is lost, when the reality of your spiritually dead and, and, and totally depraved condition kicks in, and through the power of his Holy Spirit and his word, you come to that wonderful realization that there is nothing, absolutely nothing that you can do in your own strength to get yourself out of this mess, when that wonderful realization sets in, which says you are fully and totally, completely dependent upon God and God alone to deliver you out of this dreadful condition, just when you're teetering on the edge of despair, it's at that moment that I want to invite you to look on the Savior. To see that God has indeed provided a cure to see the salvation for sinners he has provided in the death, burial, and resurrection of his perfect son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The one, the only one, who was not born of Adam's seed, right? He was not of Adam's posterity. He was not part of that tree that was chopped down in that garden. He wasn't one of those branches that inherited the sin nature of the trunk and the spiritual death that came along with it. He was not of Adam's line, Rather, he was sent into this world by his father. He was sent into this world to be conceived, not through seminal transaction, not of Adam's seed, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. To be born of a woman, a virgin, making him both fully God and fully man, truly God and truly man, allowing him and him alone to live on this corrupted and cursed earth without sin. He lived perfectly, never straying from his father's will in either thought, word, or deed. He lived a life of perfect righteousness. Where we failed, he prevailed. And he came for a purpose. He came to die. He came to die for those who recognized, realized, and accepted the reality that they could never, ever live up to their creator's perfect standards or even come close he died for those who know they are sinners. 
For those who know they're totally and completely spiritually bankrupt, he came to those who know they desperately needed a physician, not those who, in their prideful ignorance, think they're well enough to write it out with just a little bit of his help. He didn't come for those people. He came to save totally helpless sinners, all who would but believe in the Creator's Savior. In his own words, he said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe, he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Let me ask you, have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? Have you believed him? Have you believed in his gospel, which says that Yahweh God placed upon his perfect sacrificial lamb the full sin debt of all who belong to him? That the Lord Jesus Christ satisfied the righteous wrath of his Father in heaven. Not only that, but that his righteousness, his perfection, was then imputed to or credited to our account. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that through the trans, uh, though through the transgression of the one, Adam, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many? Do you believe in this gospel of grace? Have you been born again? Have you been given a new life, eternal life? Have you been given a new nature? Has he given you a new nature? A nature that now hates what he hates and loves what he loves. One that, though not yet perfect or glorified, is no longer enslaved to or in bondage to the sin, your own sin, the sin of this world, that is no longer in bondage to your enemy. I ask, do you believe it? Do you believe it? Do you believe in the the redemption and reconciliation of sinful man to a holy God which comes by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Do you believe that he did this for you personally? Again, I'm not talking about your wife or your friends or your family. I'm asking you, an everlasting soul, do you believe that he has done this for you personally? You believe it. Good. If you believe it, you can walk out of those doors with all the confidence in the world that you belong to him and that nothing, nothing can ever snatch you out of his hand. Amen? Amen. I'll have Noel and the music team come up and close us in musical worship. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for allowing us this morning through your holy and inspired word to see our standard to see our sin, to see our separation from you, to see our sentencing, and we glory in the privilege of being able to see our salvation, the salvation that you have provided by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. We love you. We love your word. We love your gospel. And it's a joy to be able to sing praises to your holy name now. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen.